0: the ajc's trusted veteran political voices greg Bluestein, patricia murphy tia mitchell and bill Nigat are the essential source for georgia politics the atlanta journal constitution's politically georgia sign up for the newsletter download the podcast subscribe to the ajc
1: hip hop is a product of black people it's a product of black song
6: listening to Breakdown, Railroad Justice in a Railroad Town, a special podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Visit our website, ajcbreakdown.com, for photos, video, and additional background.
0: Previously on Breakdown.
1: Before I sit down, I, I do want to stress uh, that Mr. Chapman testified at the habeas hearing unequivocally that he did not commit this crime. And the Telfair Superior Court made a credibility finding that covered Mr. Chapman's testimony. There was evidence before the Telfair Superior Court that a renowned polygrapher had examined Chapman twice and with a 99.9 degree of certainty had concluded he's telling the truth when he says he didn't set this fire. So he would ask the court to keep those those issues in mind, Mr. Chapman's been in prison now since 2007, and we would like to see him released. And I will never forget uh, the prayer that I made at about one o'clock in the morning on
0: that Monday morning, uh, as I was anticipating the, whether I would even sleep by you know the eight o'clock release
2: or eight o'clock release time of the opinion.
7: We're just thrilled to death. We're thrilled to death. It's been long enough. God's good. God, that's all I can say is God's good. They're exciting.
8: Thank you. I just thank God for grace, mercy, and freedom, and for the truth.
0: Two years ago, an Atlanta lawyer called me out of the blue, as Atlanta lawyers often do. Mike Kaplan said, Bill, I've got this case. So I went to his office in Midtown Atlanta. We talked about his case for two straight hours. Kaplan then sent me thousands of pages of court documents, and I began reading and reading and reading. And I was hooked. And that was the birth of Breakdown. We chronicled the case of Justin Chapman and all that was done to win him a new trial. During the past year, hardly a week went by when I didn't call or write to Kaplan and his co-counsel, John Raines. I wanted to know if there was any news, and there never was. I mean, crickets. But on a Wednesday afternoon in June, I was sitting at my desk when I got an email from the state prosecutor. Chuck Spejas was the guy charged with deciding whether to put Chapman back on trial. Attached to his message was a stamped copy of a court motion that had just been signed by the judge who oversaw Chapman's case in 2007. When I read it, I had to call Mike Kaplan. I wanted to share the news, hear what he thought about it. But I'd been on hold for a year, and I was going to have to be on hold a little while longer.
8: I'm sorry, it seems that he is not at his desk. Would you like his voicemail?
0: Is he in the office? I have news that he needs to hear right now.
8: Okay, if you hold one second, let me see if I can locate him. Okay. uh, If he's physically in
6: the office. Hold one second. Okay, all right. Thank you for holding. We'll be with you shortly.
0: I waited for one minute and 10 seconds. Seemed like forever.
8: Mr. Rankin, thank you for holding. Uh, I did locate him. He's actually in a meeting right now. Wow. He
0: really needs to hear
8: this. Okay. Hold him one second for
0: him. <laughs> okay. I was put on hold for another minute, and this time I was about to hang up. But then I realized, if Kaplan's in a meeting, he may not have heard the news by now. And I'm a newspaper guy. I love to break news. Finally.
8: I'm going to transfer you one second. Thank you very much.
2: Mike Kaplan.
0: Mike, this is Bill Rankin. It turned out I was right. Kaplan hadn't heard. Hey, Bill, I'm
2: just pulling up my email because I was in a meeting. It looks like they just filed an all-pros.
8: That is
0: fantastic. That's just terrific. They did the right thing. Chapman's case had been designated nolle prosequi. I know what you're thinking. What in the hell is that? That means it's now time for another
7: lesson, lesson in, in, in the law. law.
0: Lawyers typically shorten nolle prosequi to null pros. The literal Latin translation of nolle prosequi is okay, I'm out of here. No, actually, it means do not wish to pursue. So a nullpros is a formal declaration by the prosecutor that he will no longer prosecute the case. Rather than an outright dismissal, a nullpros gives the prosecutor a bit of wiggle room. It says, in effect, I'm not going ahead with this prosecution, for now, and maybe not ever, but I might start over again if I find more evidence. Of course, in Chapman's case, much of the prosecution's evidence is now in tatters. I can't imagine that he will ever be tried for these crimes again. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and this is our final podcast in the Justin Chapman saga. Okay, I told Kaplan the news, and now it was time for Kaplan to tell his client. Kaplan said he and John Raines got on the phone and called Chapman to break the news to him, but they had to leave a message.
2: Twice. Twice he finally called me back about an hour later so we reached him late in the afternoon on wednesday i got reins on the phone before i delivered the news because i wanted john to be a part of it and the first thing that i learned was that justin was on the top of a ladder uh, working at a job site and uh... i said justin you need to come down off that ladder <laughs> and uh... he says okay okay i'm coming down i'm coming down and Uh, He was obviously uh, very anxious to hear the news, and uh, we told him, we told him that the state had determined not to
0: re-prosecute. That's about how Justin Chapman himself remembers it. And I have to tell you, this is the first time I've been able to interview Chapman at any length throughout this entire process. Here's what he had to say.
8: Uh, I was uh, ecstatic, um, overwhelmed, I started crying. Um, It's it's surreal. It's very surreal. It's it's finally like I woke up from a 10-year nightmare and it's finally over with.
0: After the state Supreme Court granted Chapman a new trial, he was released from state prison. But he wasn't free. He was returned to the Harrelson County Jail still facing murder and arson charges. The judge there granted him bond, and Chapman walked out of jail. But he was always hyper-aware that he could be headed right back if the prosecutors decided to try him again.
8: Uh, it's, been, uh, it's, been, it's been rough. The uh, Last year's been tough. And uh, it's been rough always, you know, knowing that this is hanging over your head. And at any moment, the freedom that I had could all go away.
0: We'll hear a lot more from Justin Chapman later. He had a lot to say and the freedom to say it. It's been a year since we recorded the last episode. So bear with me as I nail down the key points of the case. We'll throw in brief bits of audio to help jog your memory. June 20, 2006. Shortly after midnight, a drunken neighbor shows up on Justin Chapman's porch, saying Chapman called the neighbor's aunt a red crack whore. Yeah, I know, I've included the phrase redheaded crack whore in every episode. The drunk guy's name was William Paul Chives. He called his brother and said, let's show these people what we do to people who mess with us chives. Chapman responded by pulling out a pistol and beating Chives with it.
8: I walked back into my yard and he kept on walking back into my yard
5: and I thought this dude's an idiot. So I began to beat him with the pistol.
0: Chapman and his family leave the duplex, concerned that additional Chives might be on the way. About an hour later, about 3 a.m., Chapman's house burns. It's a duplex and the elderly neighbor on the other side is killed.
5: A fire that killed a 79-year-old woman is being called suspicious tonight. Flames broke out early this morning at the home in Bremen. Neighbors in that community say Alice Jackson was well known for her laughter and kindness.
0: Chapman is soon charged with arson and murder in the death of Ms. Alice. He went to trial a year later and was represented by Jan Hankins. She was a state public defender with an impossible caseload. She didn't have time to prepare for the case.
3: I ended up with cases as I say, from Tifton to Tallapoosa. Tifton being at the south of the state of Georgia, Tallapoosa being at the Alabama border.
0: The key testimony against Chapman came from Gary Allen Stroop, a neighbor who claimed he saw Chapman leaving the scene of the fire, and Joseph White, a jailhouse snitch. He claimed Chapman confessed the crime to him. Stroop and White both received a $5,000 reward for their testimony that was not disclosed to the jury. Nobody offered them a deal. There wasn't any deal. There wasn't any money
2: paid. There wasn't any reduction of sentence. There wasn't any coercion. They independently told the same story because it came out of the defendant's
0: mouth. That's direct evidence of his guilt. The jury in the rural county deliberated for 40 minutes before finding Chapman guilty. Do you
5: have a verdict in the case?
7: State of Georgia versus Justin Wayne Chapman.
3: Um, Count one felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty this 29th day of June, 2007.
0: Atlanta lawyer Finn Little takes over Chapman's case for the appeal. He phones in the motion for a new trial and botches the appeal. Chapman
5: is doomed. Well, it's a disgrace. I mean, he didn't even read the transcript of the trial. This is a murder case. Uh, I mean, he just absolutely failed to do what a lawyer should do to prepare for a motion for a new trial.
0: Jan Hankins, who lost at trial, never believed Chapman was guilty. She kept looking for private lawyers who would take the case on and get him out. She finds Mike Kaplan and John Raines at an Atlanta law firm. They recruited criminal defense lawyer Frank Hoag, and hired three investigators, including retired FBI agents, Danny Sendel and John and Sonia. The agents were experienced investigators and total badasses.
1: I put my nine millimeter in the holster and I grabbed a a, a Remington 870 pump shotgun and I filled all my pockets with guns and ammo. You know, I said, man, I'm not gonna run out of guns or
0: ammo if we go in there. The new team persuades the South Georgia judge to grant Chapman a new trial. The state appeals that ruling, but in 2015, the Georgia Supreme Court voted 7-0 to uphold the ruling and give Chapman a new trial. The court found that the prosecutor withheld key evidence that could have been used in Chapman's defense. I know you know all that, but I figured a quick recap was necessary. Hey, we haven't visited in more than a year. And since we left you, the local district attorney bowed out of the case because of a conflict of interest. He once represented Joe White, the state's star witness against Chapman. The case was then taken over by the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia.
5: There's been an extensive amount of time put into it on our side to make sure we're not missing anything. Prosecuting Attorneys Council and my staff of attorneys have looked at, all, at every aspect of this and uh, feel like we've adequately vetted it. Um, as far as it being a difficult decision, no, I mean, I believe it's the right decision not to retry this case based on the evidence that we have.
0: That was Chuck Spejas the council's executive director. He made the final call to Nalpros the case. He and his team wrote a 14-page brief in support of their decision not to proceed. Here are the highlights. As we said, Joseph White was the state's key witness. He said Chapman had confessed to him while the two were locked up in the county jail. Here's what White said on the stand.
1: We had uh, several conversations, and during one of the conversations, he told me that he did kill, set the fire killed the killer. At one point, he also said he uh, felt like he'd done her a favor.
0: So the focus of the prosecution was to find any evidence it could to corroborate that purported confession. At trial, Prosecutor Charles Rooks called on Gary Allen Stroop, he of Stroop's Stoop, if you'll recall, who said he believed he saw Chapman walking away shortly before the fire broke out. That put him at the scene. We showed that it would have been all but impossible for Stroop to have been able to identify anyone at that distance in the dark. And Stroop's sister later testified that she was sitting on the front porch with Stroop that night. Here's what Peggy Lewis said.
1: Did Mr. Stroop tell you that night that
0: the person he saw was Mr. Chapman?
3: No. He actually, when we were talking about it, he said he didn't think it was Justin Chapman.
0: Stroop had also told police that the man he saw had long, wavy hair. Chapman, however, had a close-cropped, military-style haircut. Because Stroop died in 2012, it was impossible for the new prosecutors to ask him about these glaring contradictions. The prosecutors wrote, and I quote, "...the case is now in a completely different posture, with the state unable to corroborate the testimony of Joseph White in any respect. Nowhere in those 14 pages did the state prosecutors ever implicate Chapman in the crime. In fact, the prosecutor said, Chapman had strong alibi testimony from three witnesses. One would be Brandy Hughes. She said Chapman and his family arrived at her house after 2 a.m. the night of the fire. She's also said she couldn't see how Chapman could have left her house in time to drive across town and set the duplex on fire. There are also Chapman's two sons. They said they were with their father all night. They even drove with him back to the duplex at 5 a.m. and discovered it had burned down. Said the state's motion, and I quote, There is no evidence that the state can produce to a jury that Chapman left the U's residence on a separate occasion earlier that morning. That's really strong stuff. The prosecution is saying, unless all these people are lying, there is no way Chapman could have set that fire. That's the prosecution saying this. The motion also made some observations that hadn't occurred to me. The first is whether Chapman confessed or felt responsible. As we told you before, Chapman was addicted to methamphetamine at the time. The prosecutors noted that Chapman had flammable chemicals in his apartment that could be used in making meth. They surmised that Chapman may have felt responsible for the fire in the mistaken belief that his chemicals caused it. But the state's motion notes that the lye and paint thinner belonging to Chapman were not consumed in the fire. They also noted that the fire did not start inside the house where the chemicals were kept. Arson investigators determined that the fire was started by an accelerant that was splashed on the front door. Chapman may have expressed remorse to a fellow inmate about Alice Jackson's death, but his chemicals were not responsible for it, the state's motion said. In other words, there's no case against him. There's nothing. Here's Chuck Spejas again.
5: Obviously, there's been a good bit of investigation that's been conducted since the trial. We know a lot more now about this primary witness, Gary Allen Stroop, which would be Absolutely necessary for the retrial of this case and, and between the statements and comments of his sister and the other evidence we now know about him, all of that would be admissible. The reward money and all of that would be admissible. And Stroop's deceased, and I'm not willing to try this case on his prior testimony, given the fact that we know so much more about him and his testimony that would be admissible. Based on what we've got in front of us, I don't think I can corroborate any of these, um, Jailhouse statements, whatever, for lack of a better description. So we stand on our order as submitted, and uh, and as far as we are concerned, this case is closed.
1: Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash Indictment Newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash Indictment Newsletter. I can't
0: tell you definitively that Justin Chapman didn't set that fire, but I can tell you with certainty that the case against him was and is worthless. That the system broke down over and over again in his prosecution and appeal, and that he shouldn't have spent eight years in prison. The motion submitted by Spejas said the state will continue to seek new evidence, which may result in a future prosecution. That doesn't mean they're going to be gathering evidence against Chapman again. It could be anybody. And I imagine they'll be a little bit more careful this time. So, if Chapman didn't do it, who did? At the trial nine years ago, defense attorney Jan Hankins pointed the finger at the family of William Paul Chives, the guy who called his brother, and said they needed to show what happens to people who mess with us Chives. And remember what I told you in an earlier episode. Chives and a cousin had set fire to a house in neighboring Carroll County just a few weeks before Alice Jackson died. They had been seeking revenge in that case. Also remember that Chives testified that he did not make a call from the jail that night after the brawl. But a local jailer has since testified that he did. I asked Justin Chapman about his prosecution and years in prison. What I got back was a mix of religion, bitterness, resignation, and anger.
8: Well, at first I thought it was um, BS. I thought it was wrong. Um, I thought that here it was. They decided to come after an innocent man while letting a true murderer go free, and it's still the case today that they've always looked at an innocent man and never truly went after the the guilty party or even tried to find the guilty party. Um, So it makes me sick to know that there's still someone out there that's been walking the streets for 10 years who has never been charged and probably will never be charged nor convicted nor pay for what they've done. But for me to go through it, uh, it was a wake up call. It changed me in many ways, some good, some bad. I just hope and pray that no one else has to go through it and that maybe the justice system will get better. I doubt it because nobody will stand up and and, and do anything against the, the higher ups when they do wrong. There's no repercussions and consequences uh, for the people who do wrong. And I think that's wrong. I think when a DA does a person wrong and he knows it, he should have to go and serve the same amount, if not more, time in prison that the person he put there did.
0: So he mentioned a wake-up call. What did he wake up to?
8: Well, uh, you know, I, uh, I won't say I found God because I believe God finds you, but, uh, God definitely changed my life for the better. You know, I began to live for Him and serve Him, and uh, that's all because of Him that I'm free. Uh, But I got to meet some great people. Uh, I got my GED. I got to uh, become a mentor in the Faith and Character-Based Program. It was a wake-up call for me that uh, it was time for me as a person to change and do the right thing. And uh, I thank God for the experience, even though it was rough and it was hard. I thank God for the experience because it taught me who I am and that if I can make it through that, I can make it through anything.
0: Now that Chapman's out of prison, he says he wants to go back.
8: Well, I would like to be able to go back into the uh, prisons and share my testimony uh, with the men and, you know, give them hope because prison is a place that there's really no hope. And I would just like to be able to go back in and inspire the the men and give them hope. And, uh, you know, God's given me hopes and dreams. And I'd like to uh, start a homeless shelter for abused and battered women with children. You know, I'd like to uh, start a place for men who's incarcerated that have no place to to go to to be able to parole to. So uh, I have a lot of dreams and aspirations in helping people and that's what I look forward to be able to do in the future now is to be able to help people and, and give them a chance where I wasn't given a chance.
0: He spent eight years in the state correctional system, but Chapman knows he could have stayed in prison for decades without the intervention of the lawyer who believed in him and the people she brought to his corner.
8: Uh, I don't know if there's any words to describe how thankful I am for Jane and never giving up uh for emrick Bondurant em, for for allowing uh Michael Kaplan and John Rains to take the case and for Frank Hope. uh there's there's no words that I have to describe my gratitude and for how thankful I am for what they've done um I just pray that that maybe as a result of this that more innocent people can be helped and, and released from prison uh, who have been wrongfully convicted. But there's really, I I wouldn't know how to describe how thankful I am for for what they've done.
0: As you know, Jan Hankins is the common thread that runs throughout our entire story. There's another one, too. Jan and the other lawyers involved in the case asked me, are you going to talk to Emmett? You have to talk to Emmett. This wouldn't have happened without Emmett. So, yeah, I talked to Emmett, Emmett Bondurant, head of the law firm that underwrote the massive project to free Justin Chapman. Bondurant started his firm, Bondurant, Mixon, and Elmore, almost 40 years ago. It's considered one of Atlanta's finest. Throughout his career, Bondurant has nurtured a belief in pro bono work, representing people at no cost when they can't afford representation. That idea permeates the culture of Bondurant-Mixon. But free representation isn't cheap.
4: Lawyers are an unusual position in which none of these people could remotely afford our legal advice under the normal terms under which we work in our ordinary practice. So this is an opportunity to do something of enormous value that none of us are millionaires to contribute a million dollars to their defense. But that effectively is what the firm does in these cases. The Chapman case, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I know the we spent something like $70,000 in out-of-pocket expenses, and the legal time for which both John and Mike could easily have billed our normal clients uh, is in the neighborhood of $350,000, $400,000. It may be more than that.
0: You know, of course you know, that some law firms are strictly in it for the money. If it's not billable, it's not valuable. But Bondurant sees a value beyond money when it comes to pro bono work. He recalled the time when Kaplan and Rains approached him about the Chapman case.
4: The initial issue was that they had been approached by Jan Hankins, who had told Mike Kaplan and John Rains that she had defended Justin Chapman, that she was convinced that he was innocent, and that she wanted... Them to represent him. She'd apparently been to a number of other people and they turned her down and so forth. And this was sort of the last call. And they began to investigate it, then came back and said, having looked at it, they were convinced that she was right and that he was innocent and they wanted to do it. I said, You want to do it. You're committed to it. You have the full support of the firm and firm's resources and so forth.
0: Bondurant says, The client who receives representation for free gets the same service as the client who pays hundreds of dollars an hour.
4: Pro bono cases can't be second-class citizens just professionally. If you're going to do a case, do it right. Do it to win it. Commit to it totally. If you're not committed to it, it totally, don't do it at all. It's that simple.
0: Bondurant, one of the most accomplished corporate litigators in America, reaps some major rewards for his labors. But he says... In pro bono work, the rewards are even bigger.
4: For those who do because they find it professionally satisfying is one of the reasons they went to law school, which is not merely to make money for rich people or defend rich people who ought to have been accused of something, but they want to do something that they feel personally good about in terms of professional competence and reward.
0: Funny he should say that. Listen to what John Raines, another corporate litigator, said about his experience on the Chapman case.
1: I think a lot of times folks are cynical about the legal profession or uh, question the motives of attorneys or why we do what we do. And this case has made me very proud to be an attorney. And this is the kind of work uh, that really you go to law school to do uh, to make a real difference in somebody's life. This case is by far the most meaningful one I've had an opportunity to represent a client in during my legal career, uh, which is a little over eight years now. Justin has been a model client. Uh, He has been cooperative and forthright in every conversation I've had with him. He is extraordinarily grateful and humble, very easy to deal with. It's been so moving and touching uh, to get him this result, which I think he very much deserved. Uh, And I wish there was a way I could give him those eight years back
0: but no one can give him those eight years back. So, Justin Chapman has returned to the court system that treated him so poorly before. He filed suit. Now, he didn't bother to sue the prosecutors. The U.S. Supreme Court has given prosecutors such broad immunity that suing them is pointless. So he sued the lawyer who worked on his appeal. That would be Finn Little. What did Little do? I'll resist the impulse to say very little. First, he waited three years to file a motion for a new trial, a totally routine action in a criminal case. In his motion, when it was finally filed, Little named the wrong court, made incorrect statements about Chapman's defense at trial, and even cited the wrong testimony. In fact, Little never read the police interviews with key witnesses and only skimmed the trial transcript. At the hearing on his motion for new trial, Little was caught flat-footed when the judge began asking him questions. At one point, Chapman had to correct a statement that Little had made to the court. What's amazing is that even at that time, the former district attorney had conceded that Chapman deserved a new trial, but the judge ruled against Chapman. And not surprisingly, Little's appeal of that ruling was summarily rejected by the state Supreme Court. In his lawsuit against Little, Chapman alleges that Little is responsible for keeping him in prison for four years too long. Representing Chapman in this litigation is Atlanta lawyer, Darren Somerville. He has his own firm now, but guess where he started? The Atlanta firm, Bondurant, Mixon, and Elmore.
7: Basically, the post-trial hearing that was sort of the culmination of all the briefing was in 2011, and our complaint alleges that had the new trial been had, uh, as was offered by the district attorney at that point in time, then everything from 2011 forward need not have happened uh, from Justin's point of view. In other words, a new trial would have exonerated him, uh, or at the very least, he would have been a free man while the investigation was ongoing. Uh, And that's our allegation, is those years of his life were taken away.
0: The only punishment Chapman can seek against Little is financial.
7: Well, it's it's all that we have left. We can't give him those years back. Uh, unfortunately, money is a very crude tool to talk about, but it is what the system allows. So uh, we have sued Mr. Little uh, for legal malpractice, and we hope that he uh, understands his role in causing Justin's prolonged imprisonment, and we have sought damages because of that.
0: The lawsuit was filed in 2014, It's been held in abeyance by the court until the state decided whether to pursue a new trial of Chapman.
7: And so uh, we now will announce to the court that the decision has been made and the case will essentially be reignited and we'll go from there.
0: I went to see Mike Kaplan to talk with him face to face about his work on the Chapman case. Fittingly, as we sat talking on his front porch one Sunday afternoon, a train passed by behind his house. Kaplan said, Chapman's experience proves a simple truth the state needs a well-funded, properly-staffed public defender system.
2: I think that, you know, what this case shows is how important it is to have a adequately resourced defender in any case involving life and liberty, uh, in any felony case. You know, we, as a society, we expect our food to be tested. We expect our automobiles and planes to, to undergo rigorous scrutiny before, you know, we place our lives... Uh, in those, uh, you know, vehicles or before we eat food, but, uh, you know, sometimes we have much less of an expectation when it comes to our criminal justice system. Uh, I think we should expect the same level of careful and rigorous testing whenever the state seeks to take somebody's life or liberty uh, based upon the accusation that uh, that person uh, committed a crime. And that's why we need a public defender system that uh, allows lawyers to have sufficient time and and sufficient investigative resources that they can uh, test the state's case to ensure that the ultimate outcome is accurate. And that did not happen in this case.
0: I reminded Kaplan of his initial phone call to me and of how we met at his office two years before. In Railroad Justice in a Railroad Town, we've been running on parallel tracks ever since. I thanked him for letting me go along for the ride. And I had one final question. Why did you
2: call me? Well, I think I called you because I thought that it was a really important case. And I thought that it deserved the attention of the public because the case exposed failures, really at every level of the, of the criminal justice system. And those failures are, are, would be easy to replicate. They could happen in any case. And that's what has haunted me about this case. A lot of things had to have happened for Justin to be free. Jan continued to persist and advocate for him years after her representation ended. She came to, happened to come to a lawyer in a law firm that was willing to take the case. Had those two things not happened, had Jan not continue to advocate for him? Justin, I think, would still be sitting in prison, an innocent man. And I wonder, who else is out there
0: like this? After I got the Nalpros order, I also called Jan Hankins. I told her the news while she was sitting in a DeKalb County courtroom waiting for the jury to come back on a case she had just tried. She told me, nearly 18 months ago, that Chapman's incarceration had often robbed her of her sleep. She knew that when she tucked her son into bed every night, she was having an experience that was taken from Chapman and his children. But she's resting easier now. No more nightmares about Chapman.
3: A lot of it went away when the habeas was granted. And then when the Supreme Court affirmed the habeas, I just felt so much better by then. Mr. Chapman spent years of his life in prison. Think about it. If you have one bad day, one bad week, and then multiply that by year after year after year, it was a long time.
0: Still, Hankins was quick to remind me of something important. It's the whole reason I wanted to do breakdown. The system failed, and it's still failing.
3: The two sort of dampening effects in this whole case are that Mr. Chapman and his family have to put their lives back together. And then, of course, there's the population of Bremen, Georgia. The people that live there potentially have a murderer, and arsonist, running around in their midst. That is a bit disquieting. Those are some sort of somber realities about this case. But in terms of it being over for Justin Chapman, I couldn't be more thrilled, could not be more thrilled. This is a once in a lifetime occurrence, and it's so thrilling to me that it worked out this way.
0: After reading all those thousands of pages of documents that Mike Kaplan gave me two years ago, I felt certain that Justin Chapman had gotten a raw deal from George's courts. Turns out, those very courts have now decided that was indeed the case. How many more raw deals are unfolding in the courts right now? How many more men and women have already fallen through the cracks? How many more Justin Chapmans are out there? Time to get back to work. Please go to AJC Breakdown for prior episodes of this podcast, photos of the cast of characters, a timeline, court documents, and bonus audio and video.
6: Breakdown is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallex. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson and Chris Basta. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. Story consultant, Susanna Capaluto Special thanks to Billy Thurman, Candy Doki, Bert Roten, Eric Netherton, Maggie Price, Brian Anderson, Buddy Hall, and Chris Bowling. This concludes our telling of the saga of Justin Chapman, but it's not the end of Breakdown. Go to AJCBreakdown.com or iTunes to listen to Season 2, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder.